Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Truth and Movies, my old friend. This week, it's a special Don't Go to the Cinema, You Might See These Movies edition. First up, Age of Stupid gets its signature film with Transformers, the toughest Baywatch since, well, Baywatch. Then, the extraordinary Book of Henry. It's horrid, more misjudged than a beauty pageant, but is it bad enough to get the director fired from the next Star Wars gig? We'll be talking about the worst movies ever made, and speaking of cobblers, saluting Daniel Day-Lewis plus Film Club, in which we are all excited by a 50-year-old. Ironic, really, given that it's The Graduate. That's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us, everybody. We've got a fresh cast of faces for you today, with Adam Woodward returning. Hi, Adam. Hello. Good to see you back. And joined by Michael Leader. Hello. Out of Film 4 and the extended Little White Lies Family. family member, that's me. Right, okay. What have you been working on of late? So for Little White Lies, I've been writing reviews and uh, separately doing can reviews for Sight and Sound. My day job, I work for Film 4 as uh, their online editor for social media and the website. Right. But I also program on the side as Misc Films. Mm. Okay, well for us this week, You've seen two pretty remarkable films. We'll come on to the first of those in a second or two. Just a quick reminder that you can get in touch with us on Twitter at LWLies via Facebook at the Little White Lies magazine page. And the email address, Adam, is? Uh, Truth and Movies, all one word, at tcolondon.com. Boom. Have one or two little messages. A lot of people saying they can't travel on the M25 anymore without thinking about um, my breakdown last week. Also, Jamie O'Halloran says, oh, rather than discussing bad cinema experiences, why don't we talk about amazing ones? We'll do that in future. If you have an amazing cinema experience, one that hopefully we can air in public, do let us know. It's nice to accentuate the positive, isn't it? Particularly in this week of all weeks, a week which saw us sit through Transformers The Last Night. <laughs> keep a secret for so long knowing it to be true and yet deep down inside you begin to wonder has my life been wasted have you ever felt like that mr kane it's just Cade. look old timer i don't have a ton of patience for riddles right now yes but you want to know don't you dude why they keep coming here to earth Yes, that was Sir Anthony Hopkins in a Michael Bay Transformers film, Adam. Is it worth trying to summarise the plot of this two-and-a-half-hour beer moth? I can certainly give it a go. Can you? Yeah, I mean, so this is the fifth movie in the live-action Transformers series. Michael Bay is back. Mark Wahlberg is back as Cade Yeager, who's a sort of misc bro type, uh, who we find out in this film has a sort of strange connection to the Transformers lore. Interestingly, the, the film is more 
about Arthurian legend. Or what Michael Bay reckons is Arthurian legend. Yeah. yeah. He actually was apparently thrown off a, a King Arthur film back in, back in the sort of mid-noughties. So I think this is him exacting his revenge mm. on her for that. He's exacting his revenge on all sorts of things with this, this movie, which is, for me, a particularly objectionable watch. Yeah. It is the fifth live-action film. Ten years ago, when they first came up with the notion of doing a series of films about a, a toy that goes from being a car to a robot, if you'd said five years later... These will have grossed over three billion, and he'll be talking about plans for a prequel and another fourteen possible storylines. It's just mental. Well, he said he's not going to do well. Michael Bay and Mark Wahlberg said they're not going to do any more of these films. But I can imagine if this makes more money, which it most likely will, given foreign markets that they're targeting, they'll make loads more. I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't. Can you find any circumstances in which you would suggest somebody watch this film? Is there any group of person who would actually enjoy? This film. I sort of watched this quite aware while watching this that I'm maybe not the target audience. But then I was thinking, okay, if you're if you're a sort of thirteen year old teenage boy, are you going to be interested in the Arthurian law? Are you going to be interested in Nazis and Stonehenge? And it it seems dangerously out of touch and right. I think a bit lame also. I mean, there are some interesting storylines there, and I think having been a thirteen year old boy, there was much to enjoy in Arthurian legend and, and you know, all that business in the Nazis, etc. It's just the fact that he does absolutely nothing with them. It, it's just another snapshot of a robot smashing something and then we're on to the, the next thing. It's so long. I did try to approach this with a positive mind to try and at least enjoy the visual spectacle, but it just defeated me utterly. Especially over the, over the two and a half hour runtime, it does get very boring yeah. and you do get quite dulled by the spectacle that goes on the bayhem around you. But can I say that I quite enjoyed it in miniature? Really? It really is cinematic spaghetti thrown at the wall. Like every half-baked idea they had in the writer's room makes it in here from, as you say, Arthurian legends. It starts in the Dark Ages. We get a World War II flashback to a, a whole army career that one of the Transformers had that we hadn't heard of pre- in the previous movies. Uh, but then likewise... I found myself enjoying, in Snapshot, certain elements. For example, Sir Anthony Hopkins, who is a world-class ham, Hmm. seeing him in a movie where he gets to say dude in his own way, but also then, on the turn of a dime, bring that natural talent that he has to spout ridiculous dialogue with Gravitas. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. But also, little elements in the cast. I love that now that we're what, a decade into these big Hollywood movies coming over to the UK for the various tax breaks, we get to see another shot of the Thames, etc. I love that they're getting quite deep into British character actor, TV actor lists here. So one little cameo in here is Rebecca Front from The Thick of It and Armando Iannucci shows mm. as a particularly overbearing aunt for Laura Haddock, who is the, the romantic interest female co-lead in this. I th- it was such a, an amazing surprised to see somebody you usually see on the small screen mm. on an IMAX screen yeah. which is kind of like with the previous one Age of Extinction seeing Kelsey Grammer from Frasier etc in a similarly large movie. It is remarkable the cast that he, Michael Bay has managed to attract to this film but then again he is a genius and a savant and not my words but those of Sir Anthony Hopkins who spoke of the first four Transformers films saying they are terrific they were created they were created by a genius. That's my Anthony Hopkins voice. He said he's the same ilk as Oliver Stone and Spielberg and Scorsese. Brilliant. Savants, really. They are. He's a savant. Um, I know I take this kind of thing too seriously, but watching that film yesterday, seeing Hopkins in that, seeing John Goodman featuring vocally, Steve Buscemi as well, the fact that somebody with as much respect for storytelling and fable as Steven Spielberg was involved in this just makes me think, why do you allow this to happen? You don't need the money. Why do you allow cinema's resources, a man with some artistic talent like Bay, who's made interesting films in the past, to just 
spunk it up the wall. For me, this film was a little bit like turning up at a very loud house party halfway through where you're sober and everybody else is off their heads and shouting at each other the whole time and then being locked in for another two and a half hours. My goodness, it was relentless. But as you say, there were bits, the, the kind of tea room vignette that we had with Rebecca Front, which was the one bit where they actually slowed the editing down. Yeah, it's film. amazing how even in dialogue scenes, the first scenes with Mark Wahlberg and so on, the, the, the average shot length is still in the you know, under a second. You're just cutting and cutting and cutting. How many editors do you normally have in a major blockbuster? Oh, one or maybe two. Right, how many editors does this film this have? This one has six. Six editors. Yeah, six editors, four writers, one director. Although I think Michael Bay, he loves doing the kind of practical on-set stuff, blowing things up, running around. There's some amazing on-set photography of him with these amazing camera rigs and all that goes with that. But I I don't imagine he spends much time in the editing room. I think he probably hands over all, all the footage and the rushes and says, go on, cobble that together. And it really does feel like it has been quite lazily, I think insultingly so, um, mm. cobbled together. It's, it's so incoherent. Prior to going into the cinema, you were talking, Adam, about possibly reclaiming the Michael Bay legacy, reappraising a, a maligned director, celebrating some of his finer points. Do you still feel that same way? I'm a bit of a Bay apologist. I think ultimately people are quite down on him for reasons which I think he may be fully aware of. I think his films are quite tongue-in-cheek often. I respect him for being able to make huge films like this. That, do you not think that after I mean, having made four of these, you might go, I'll do something different for my next project? But he has, done, he has done different things. He made Pain and Gain a few right, years okay. ago, which, again, very tongue-in-cheek, uh, very sort of knowing in how ludicrous the whole thing is. Mm. It's a big, fun movie. Like these films, I think, it's just that that one has a much clearer idea of what it is and what it's trying to do. Right, OK. I've not seen episodes three and four of this series. I gave up after two prior to this one. Is this significantly worse than Age of Extinction or Darker the Moon or has the series been this bad for a while? I think it's been quite bad for a while. Um, To be honest, I can't really remember that much about the previous films. I actually realised, going back, that I'd reviewed the last one for us Mm. uh, and I thought I hadn't actually seen it. So I do tend to try and blot these films out. They do all run together. One thing from Age of Extinction, the first act, actually had this sense of myth-making that this movie strives for with, as we say, Arthurian legends and Mm. so on, where Mark Wahlberg is a mechanic who's searching for bits and pieces in a run-down movie theatre. And it's like, what's that over there in the corner? It's a a run-down truck and it was Optimus Prime. There was this sense of kind of legacy and bringing the film back, dusting it off and giving it a new lick of paint. Mm. But uh, no, I, I don't think this is, I mean, apart from the scale of it all, you can see that they're really straining to make this one a large send-off if this is Michael Bay's final film, the right. throwing everything at the wall, bringing back a few characters. John Turturro comes back. There's a Blink and Miss, Shia LaBeouf photograph, mm-hmm. cameo. <laughs> yeah, so they do bring people back and also uh, Josh uh, Duhamel, yeah. uh, who's from the first three, who wasn't in Age of Extinction. So there is a sense of a franchise there, but talking about Michael Bay, what he can do is scale and spectacle and throwing everything at the the energy of it all. What he can't do is franchise filmmaking, which is what Marvel can do so much better. Okay, again, don't want to be the negative one, but Mm -hmm. when you talk about scale and spectacle, this is a big film, but it's so confused Mm -hmm. that the scale just did nothing for me because it's impossible to work out what on earth's going on and what it all means when 30 seconds later we're off doing something completely different. I think this is what's so disappointing about this film in, in a way because... It's not bad. It's not without any kind of sense of, like you say, legacy of the franchise. It's certainly trying to add to that. It's trying to build on what is established already. But just on a purely technical point of view, it just feels like 
they don't care. They have kind of made this film uh, on a huge scale, huge budget, and yet between the six editors and the multiple writers and everything else, they've conspired to make this very incoherent, uh, clumsily uh, edited movie. I mean, there are so many shots where a character will like jump down a flight of stairs and in the next shot they're 50 yards away. Just shot by shot, the way it's matched, it's confusing to watch, I think. No, all right. Well, the Autobots just want to go home, and you will too, watching this movie. That's my tagline if they want that for the poster. Nice. <clears throat> what scores would you give it? Against my better judgment, I th- went into this with an open mind because I do like these, mm-hmm. these sort of big, silly movies. I think it's so close to being passable if it had just been put together and edited better. So I would give it a three for anticipation, a two for enjoyment, and a one in retrospect. Right. Michael? One for anticipation, mm-hmm. um, but then I actually quite enjoyed it, as we said, in snapshots, so maybe a three in really? enjoyment. Yeah. Just in terms of the yeah. pure pleasure of it all, the enjoyment of it all. Um, and that, But then probably it's going to fade into a one or a two, right. probably in retrospect. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my anticipation, you'd kind of talked me into it with this Bay Apologism business, but within, didn't take long for me to be flatlining ones all the way. And it, downwards from there, I think, the more I think of it, you'd be better off... Here's a suggestion, listeners, is seeking out the 1986 cartoon Transformers the movie. How about this for a production? A Transformers film featuring Leonard Nimoy, Orson Welles and Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, Orson Welles' last film. Wow. And he, he was working on it five days before he died. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Great theme tune as well. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And this is something that Little White Lies uh, celebrated on, on the website. Indeed, yeah. yeah. You can go and, and read a piece uh, about that, that very film on the website. All right. Do that, listener. Yeah. Do that. Right. Well, after that, next up, let's talk about the mind-meltingly bad Book of Henry. Did our financial statement come in the mail today? Yeah. I forgot to give it to you. I don't know how you do it. All by yourself. Come on, I have Henry. Find me another male of the species who's more grown up than him. I'd like to. The story... It's about me, my brother, my mom, and the girl who lived next door. Henry and Peter, they're lucky to have you. And your father's lucky to have you too. Stepfather. Book of Henry. It sounds quite passable in that form, but what's the reality of this, Michael Leader? Oh gosh, what a completely misjudged horror show this one is. This is the third film from Colin Trevorrow, uh, whose two credits to date include um, Safety Not Guaranteed, the indie sci-fi drama, and then Jurassic World, massive um, blockbuster hit from a couple of years ago. This is a smaller film, uh, sort of a, let's say, fairy tale melodrama with a moral, at least that's what's intended, about um, a young family. It's Naomi Watts as the mum, and uh, the lad from Midnight Special as, as Henry, mm-hmm. and his brother is Jacob Tremblay from Room. And uh, Henry is a, a child prodigy, a precocious kid who um, is almost a superhero, really, in the way that he has superhero reasoning, knowledge, and so on. He runs the family. Uh, he plays the stock market so that his mum, uh, even though she works a day job at, at a diner, uh, has vast reserves of money. But he, he contracts a brain tumour and, quite sadly, halfway through the movie dies, but leaves behind this notebook, the Book of Henry of the title, which leaves instructions for his mum to follow some instructions and leave a mark on the world that Henry intended. There's a quote from Mike Nichols, which, with The Graduate being re-released, I read this week, says, A movie is like a person. Either you trust it or you don't. I think one of my issues with this film was that from the very opening exchange where kids are describing their legacy in a classroom, 
I just absolutely had no, uh, no feeling of anything real about this movie at all. Nothing seemed genuine. No, it's tonally a bit of a strange movie. It sets out its stall as a slightly whimsical um, family melodrama. And by the end, it's this bizarre kiddie revenge thriller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in that clip, it said that it was a story about his mum's brother and, and the girl next door. And the, the, the instructions left behind is to help this girl next door who may be you know, the victim of domestic abuse. Mm. And it, what's so strange is that it's she's very rarely in the film. She's given nothing to say. Right. Uh, she's purely played as a victim, so it really is just Naomi Watts listening to a tape and reading a notebook and following instructions. It's a very odd one where it becomes something more like kind of Primer, the sci-fi movie, where you know people are just listening to instructions and enacting a plot. It's very strange. Just bizarre decisions all the way through. The critics, as you, you've probably seen, have not been kind at all. Boston Globe talking about like a frog being slowly boiled to death... Uh, the Atlantic, I like this quote, the exact moment the book of Henry lost me was when Naomi Watts reached for the ukulele. And she um, does some great video game acting in this as well. Playing, yeah. playing video War. game. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting cast. You've got Sarah Silverman in there. You mentioned uh, Jacob Tremblay, Jaden Liberer. But almost as if every decision that they took, how can we make this film worse? Uh, just a- astonishing series of plot and tonal decisions from the director. I was just wondering all, all throughout this film, like it discusses the idea of every great story having a moral, and I was just baffled as to what they think the moral is in this film. Mm. And like you say, every decision made sort of seemingly takes them further away from that. I do think one possible reading is is it refutes the theory that video game playing leads to uh, actual violence in, right. in the real world. That's true. Another theory is that it actually was a parody. At the screening that I went to, titters started to kind of build as some of the more bizarre plot twists occurred. People started to laugh. Some of the lines as well are just so far out there cheesy that you think they must be joking now. Sadly, I don't think that Colin Trevorrow actually did mean it as a joke. There's some suggestion now that he might not be entrusted the last Star Wars film. Well, he was entrusted with Star Wars after Jurassic World, right. and of course, you know, the Jurassic Park franchise and Star Wars kind of share a lot of you know similar DNA and lineage and and so on. He was anointed by Brad Bird in order to get that role. Mm. Brad Bird said, "This guy really? reminds me of me," and was suggested him to take on Jurassic World. And of course, the Jurassic Park franchise. Kathleen Kennedy worked on those films to begin with before she jumped ship to Lucasfilm. So. Clearly, they saw something, and he, even though that film was criticised quite broadly in, in in the press when that came out, Jurassic World did make a lot of money, mm. and he brought home a, a a big hit. So, it's clearly a good 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 choice for Star Wars. That, that's interesting though, because Brad Bird's last film didn't make any money. Uh, he's a filmmaker oh, who I love, but Tomorrowland mm. absolutely crashed and burned. So, mm-hmm. God knows why they've let him be Should... the kind of kingmaker there. Jurassic World did solidly, wasn't particularly loved. Should Star Wars fans be worried? I don't think so. Well, who knows? We're currently in the almost out of the honeymoon phase with the Star Wars movies. The news that came in overnight as we're recording mm. is that uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller are off the Han Solo project, yeah. which is the first kind of real sign that the Star Wars movies are being handled like the Marvel movies, where the producers uh, have the ultimate power and they're actually much more cowardly than you'd think. Although we saw something a little bit less overt, but along the same lines with Rogue One. It was reshot, yeah, mm. by Tony Gilroy. So... Maybe Conjuro will be taken off the project. Who knows? But um, I, I suppose we'll have to see. These right. films are being made if, at such a pace. If he's not... I mean, I had no idea when I was watching it that this guy was lined up to do the third of the, of the new trilogy. 
But afterwards, I was horrified at the notion. I would be that- horrified. This came across like Spielberg light, really. Like he was trying to find a Spielbergian, slightly heightened Americana in this film. When the script, which is quite shockingly written, it's the mm. first original screenplay by um, I've forgotten his name now. Um, who uh, the, a, a guy who you're doing him a favor by forgetting it exactly. Yeah. He's mainly a young adult crime writer, mm. um, and there's so many bad sentimental speeches and characterization. Uh, you know, we talk about Sarah Silverman, who's a very funny and quite sensitive actor when she's taken outside of a comedy role. Her first line, she turns up, she's a, a diner waitress. She's got a massive tattoo on her chest and she says, hey toots, what's up? Or something. It's like, that's her character in one line and then she doesn't move anywhere from that, doesn't gain dimension. So... As much as we can blame the script, I, you know, I would worry about Colin Trevorrow's future. One of the difficulties of this film is it's so bad that in trying to analyse why it is such a desperately awful film, you almost build up people's interest. You almost make it intriguing to people. Just the, the way that the plot veers wildly from one kind of movie to another and then to a third again. But it is a remarkably bad film, and I'm almost tempted to go back and watch it again just to make sure that it actually happened the way I remember. Oh, definitely. I think there's something quite morbidly fascinating about this film. Mm. I actually think they missed a trick slightly with going down this quite cosy, safe route. They could have gone down a much darker route with this. I'd love to have seen a film where uh, Naomi Watts' character, who is essentially emotionally manipulated by her 11-year-old son, I mean, she literally can't make a decision without his authority, If there was some plot where he was basically getting her to... um, Enact his wishes. A Michael Haneke version of this would be incredible, I think. (laughs) But not this sickly sweet take, no. But it's it's interesting, once a film is anointed, when we saw it, that was after the American reviews had come out, and it's almost been, now it's okay to hate this film. Right. Go into it, laugh at it. You know, it's a terrible movie. Yeah. Um, and I think people do enjoy when they're given free reign to just rag on a movie, right. both critics and audiences alike. Well, if you do enjoy that, then maybe you should go and see Book of Henry because there's so much to dislike mm-hmm. here. We should celebrate that, I suppose. Would you like to give this some numbers? Oh, gosh, I think this is... Uh, I had read the reviews beforehand, mm-hmm. so in anticipation was way low. It was one. Right. Uh, but then I think I would give it probably a, a two for, for enjoyment right. just because, as we say, it's at least got good actors in. We don't mention Lee Pace, who's all... He, he turns up as almost like a character who's walked in from the ER set. He's yeah. a neurosurgeon with a beard. Again, tonally so well judged. He, he arrives to tell the, the child about his terminal illness. And in fact, he's got days to live with the words, hey, kiddo. <laughs> and then, of course, they have an in-depth conversation about neuroscience and brain tumours because of course. of course the kid knows everything there is to know about brain tumours um, but yeah, two for enjoyment and uh, yeah, one in retrospect let's not go back I didn't really know much about this film before so I'd give it a three mm-hmm. uh, for anticipation and then twos for enjoyment and in right. retrospect I came out of this thinking I'm going to use minus numbers for <laughs> you can do yeah I don't know what they'd be but this below zero yeah. the tricky thing is that I was at least comforted by the notion that I'd found the worst film that I'd seen all year, possibly ever. But then I went to see Transformers, and I don't know now which is worse, because at least there was a plot line, at least there was a coherent attempt at storytelling in The Book of Henry, whereas Transformers, my goodness. If we were to discuss the worst film you've ever seen, I would put both these films in my top, or indeed bottom five, other movies I'd put in there, definitely Zoolander 2, which you used the phrase insultingly bad before. I mean, that, that would have that epithet branded all over it. Any other absolute stinkers? It depends how we define worse. Some films are so bad they're good and enjoyably mm. so. I think at least both these films are 
well, as we said, with Transformers, you can enjoy the spectacle and the flashing lights and the cameos. With Book of Henry, at least it is kind of dulls you into insensibility by how dull it is. And, but then you can at least engage with it in a sort of what the hell's going on. The worst sorts of films are ones that are ineptly made. So mm. I, I go back to classics like Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. Oh, yeah. But of course, probably the worst film I've seen in recent years was a film directed by Sean Penn called The Last Face. I don't know if you saw this, Adam. I missed that. It was in competition at Cannes uh, last year. Mm. And it's Javier Bardem and Charlize Theron as a sort of, as, as aid workers in crisis zones and it's just monumentally misjudged it's supposed to be about the actual causes but actually it's about these white people having white people problems right and it was just shockingly bad and seeing it on the croissette in Cannes almost heightens how bad a film like that is. It's perverse, isn't it? Because now I actually want to see that film. I think it finally limped into cinemas a couple of months ago very quietly. Right. For a long time, no one bought the rights because it was so badly received. Wow. Adam? The one that springs to mind for some reason is Terminator Genesis from a few years ago. Oh, yeah, that was. Which is pretty bad. I mean, yeah. so so bad that I think they've cancelled the, the subsequent sequel that they were intending there. Mm. Can we throw Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice in here? Because that was an absolute stinker as well. But again, that that's got some like redeeming qualities to it, I think. And, and which al- and, ones? Uh, well, and also it's a movie which, you know, it, it's not particularly well made. I'll, I'll give you that. But again, it's one of these huge spectacle movies that I think it does deliver a certain level of pleasure. And it's quite strange some of the decisions that are made. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't say it's like one of the worst movies ever. I do think Zack Snyder is the sort of filmmaker who is a, a terrible filmmaker, but every now and then stumbles onto a fantastic shot. So I, I, I at least applaud his vision compared to some Marvel movies, which may be generally better made, right. but often look like they're shot on a car park. So at least with Ooh, Batman thanks. and Superman. Right. Well, well, if you think about the action sequences in the last five Marvel movies, they right. all take place in either airfields or car parks yeah. or you know some anonymous open area. Yeah. I feel that Zack Snyder's Batman at least has a sort of a very stylized and saturated vision behind them, even if they're quite tonally misjudged, if they're bloated and so on. A lot of the, the action sequences in Fight Club took place in car parks, but nobody had a problem with that. <laughs> or did they? Or did they? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> right. There you go then. That was Book of Henry and Worst Films Ever. We should probably mention it at this point, the world of acting and drama in general, culture just the world in general, has been rocked to its core by the news that Daniel Day-Lewis is hanging up his acting boots. Gloves. Gloves. Are you a fan? Well, of course. Who isn't, right? Yeah, who isn't? But he hasn't made a film uh, since 2012. Lincoln, I think. Lincoln, right. Five years now. And he has got a film coming out later this year, December, now, and you Paul Thomas Anderson, who famously helmed There Will Be Blood, which I think a lot of people would regard as his greatest. Yeah. It's going to be called The Phantom Thread, or Phantom Thread. So there's that. But uh, Day-Lewis has let it be known that he's not going to do any more acting after that, thanks. Adam, you don't seem particularly distressed at this. You're not red-eyed or... I I think he's a very very good actor, but, you know, I would only pick out maybe a handful of roles that he's done that I really genuinely love. I think There Will Be Blood is definitely one of them. Mm. Uh, The Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese, is, is another one. And actually, I'm, I'm quite like Gangs of New York. Do you? Yeah. I think first time around, I was quite disappointed by it. But his Bill the Butcher is quite pantomime and and yeah, there's a lot to like in that character, I think. Right. A lot of pieces today celebrating his method approach, how he learnt Czech to play the doctrine, uh, unbearable likeness in being, and confined himself to a wheelchair for my left foot. But for Gangs of New York, listen to Eminem. <laughs> so he has, of course, once disappeared from the acting world before so some people are suggesting it's going to be a similar similar thing he'll be back 
Well, it's so hard to miss somebody who only makes... He's only made five films in the last decade or really? something like that. So it's not like he's a, a constant presence on our screens that we'd miss. And also, I think maybe in 10, 15 years, once he starts getting into, say, let's say, King Lear territory, mm. maybe he will come back, just retire for, for Transformers now. 20, something like that. When, if the paycheck's big enough. But I, I'd, I'd say my recommendation, if, if people are kind of looking back at his career, is go all the way back to My Beautiful Laundrette, which mm. was the star-making role in the mid-'80s. It was originally a TV movie, one of the first films four productions in fact not to sound like I'm huh. towing the party line too much but it's such a an underrated film it's not really talked about enough and he plays Johnny who's a very confused young man in London who is, is torn between the sort of skinhead friends he has but then also this burgeoning romance he has with this Pakistani laundrette owner and it's such a beautiful interracial love story uh, beautiful gay love story that still is very relevant mm. and it's been sort of neglected for years but it's getting the sort of lavish BFI Blu-ray treatment in August so worth checking out. Oh nice one. We should do that for a film club. We should do that for a film club Speaking of film clubs that's up next. We're going to be all about the Benjamin as we discuss The Graduate Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds Recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Listener, if you're new to Truth and Movies, this is the bit where we watch or have watched a classic film, one you may have missed or that just generally warrants reappraising. And this week it's The Graduate, which has actually got a, a re-release this Friday in the UK in cinemas in celebration of its 50th anniversary. And from the poster which they've done, which is very nice, I mean, they've got a cougar mm-hmm. <laughs> next to the young Dustin Hoffman. They seem to be marketing it as a comedy, which is an interesting choice. I mean, it certainly is a, a funny film. What struck me was the fact that it was so fresh. One or two kind of flash frames and wobbly pans aside it is it's still feels a really fresh film 50 years on oh yeah definitely it's got some universal themes um in a way which i think the freshness comes from the fact that it's just beautifully directed written acted i mean there really isn't i think anything out of place in this film and i also just love the the way it's paced i mean it couldn't be more opposite to something like transformers Mm. in in the way it's i mean totally different films obviously but yeah it's just so slow and meditative and 
melancholy. I, I, the humour, I get a little bit of that, but yeah, it's a profoundly sad film, I think. Yeah. It was certainly fresh for me because I hadn't seen this before. Really? So that was always one of the films that I kept in my back pocket. I've seen many other Dustin Hoffman films, many other Mike Nichols films, but I thought I'd come to it on a rainy day. Instead, I watched it on a sunny day <laughs> over the weekend. And yes, what struck me was, even though it's held up as one of these kind of water, high watermark moments in early New Hollywood, it's such an art movie and clearly influenced by European filmmakers. Clearly, it's one of those movies where there are a few key iconic scenes that we've seen parodied, but there's so much more to it and you, you talk about the, the the flash frames and so on but there's a, a sort of playfulness with form there mm. that I wasn't expecting and I presumed that it would be more of a comedy knowing you know Mike Nichols comes from the Nichols and May you know comedy duo beforehand and uh, you know Who's Frame Virginia Woolf is very much a stagey production very much character you know performance led and it was such a hazy movie The Graduate and melancholy as, as Adam said and Dustin Hoffman plays such a a nervy, neurotic character contrasted with Anne Bancroft, who is fantastic in, in this role. So mm. cat-like, but then so sad when required. Although I do find it quite fascinating, the age difference between the two is only seven or six years. She, yeah. was, she was in her mid-30s and he had just turned 30. There's a cameo from Richard Dreyfus later in the movie as, as one of the dorm room uh, students when he, God, when, he goes off, when, he, when he goes up to Berkeley. He's like in the background. I think he has one line where he says, should I call the cops? And Dreyfus is actually 20 in that movie, so probably closer to Benjamin Braddock's age. And that's probably one thing I would say about the movie. Hoffman definitely does not look 21. <laughs> no, I think he carries himself, even though he's meant to be this quite sad figure. He does a lot of soul searching. He's very anxious. He also carries himself with a certain authority. He seems very comfortable in his own skin as an actor and you know as the character. Um, but I first watched this film actually when I was a student, and oddly, it resonates more with me. I think today, mm. possibly just because my cinema going uh, experiences have become much broader since then, and certainly a lot of the European art house influences you mentioned. But yeah, as I say, it's a profoundly sad movie. I think the possibly one of the all-time great movie endings, yeah, um, which is a real, you know, heartbreaker. I think. Yeah, we all we all know it from Wayne's World, I, I suppose, where he runs into the church and is banging on the glass, you know, Elaine, Elaine, or we know it from the, the Vic and Bob uh, adverts in the nineties. Oh, yeah. uh, but the final shot is one of those great shots, and there are only a few. We were trying to think of some the other day where they're both on the bus driving yeah. away, off to have their romance. Even though when you see the full film, you realise that romance is just as much born out of boredom and desperation there's no actual connection between those characters so you see this sort of excitement on their faces slightly drain away into well what do we do now yeah Yeah. what's next i actually wondered watching this whether there's any kind of parallel to ghost world which we did on film club a few weeks ago with with the ending and the 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 metaphor of the bus Mm. riding off and what it means you know what is life very interesting point it's such a poetic movie one of the things the the recurring motif of the swimming pool which is used in so many different ways you know he's drifting when he says what are you doing benjamin's i'm I'm drifting but then also where he's dressed up in the the scuba diving outfit and forcibly pushed underwater by his parents that's Mm. such a potent image for the pressure put upon this character but then also a space of calm and isolation when he dunks himself under there to avoid the family party It's interesting, you mentioned Anne Bancroft and and her performance and the film is not in any way told from her perspective although she does reveal the fact that there is a human side to the, the vastly decadent society that Benjamin has returned to college from She does allow a few glimpses into 
the fact that they're essentially just people as, uh, almost as lost as Benjamin himself. Is, but I, watching it, I did think, Craigie, you're Sophia Coppola. This is the film you should remake from a feminist perspective rather than, say, The Beguiled. Well, make it from the Catherine Ross perspective, I oh, think, yeah, would well, be also, also fascinating. Yeah. There needs to be a companion Because she's there. completely empty in this mm. film. One of my favourite scenes, I think, is when Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson are in, in bed together after mm. their fling has been going on for some time and he wants to have more of a kind of connection with her and, and gets her talking a bit about her own backstory and her own life, which we haven't had really anything of up to this point. Um, and she basically reveals that the reason she's in this loveless marriage is that she got pregnant. That makes you realise how life spins on these these moments that are sometimes out of your control and she is this quite tragic figure in, in the film, I think. Yeah, very much so. Wow. All right. So that was The Graduate. I hope you enjoyed it. What are you going to talk about next week? Callum Willard, I think that is, says, can you consider Casino for Film Club? I think it's almost forgotten about in the shadow of Goodfellas. Terrific film, isn't it, Casino? I like Casino very much. Mm. But I think for next week, the main film we're going to be talking about is Baby Driver by Edgar Wright. Right. Uh, And one of the key influences on that film uh, was a Jean-Pierre Melville film called Le Samurai, which I think is getting a re-release at some point later this year. It'd be a very interesting one to rewatch. 1967. Yeah. Uh, featuring Alain Delon. This yeah, the a, great Alain Delon, and one of, one of his best roles, I think. It's a fabulous film to brag about having watched. So get out there and get on that. He, he plays a professional hitman called Jeff Costello. Fantastic. And it's French. Brilliant. Uh, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I've not seen it before. Have you seen that one, Michael? I've not seen it before. I've only seen one Melville film, uh, Army of Shadows, which is incredible. But I'd love to catch up with this one right super anything else that we should mention before we wrap this one up I was just going to mention that I'm off to Edinburgh tomorrow for right. the film festival the 71st Edinburgh film festival wow okay what are you most looking forward to seeing up there well there's a few highlights in the programme the new Terence Malick film Song to Song is playing there mm. but yeah I, I had a quick squiz through the programme and there's it's a absolutely bumper programme this year but there's some really interesting looking British made films um, there's a Morrissey biopic which I don't know people seem to be quite anti-Morrissey right. which is fair enough but is it a dramatisation a dramatisation of his life yeah does Daniel Day-Lewis play Stephen Patrick he, he should do he should do, he should do. do. Yeah. it looks like it's going to be a good year for Discovery so I'm going in with an open mind ok good alright excellent what are you going to be up to Michael in the next fortnight Misc Films has the next screening it's we're showing Taika Waititi's Boy which was a film that he made before What We Do in the Shadows and, and Hunt for the Wilder People which right. wasn't released over here it's a a great coming-of-age story set in an 80s Maori community. Okay. We're showing that at uh, the Prince Charles on the 6th of July. On so the 6th of July. We're getting ready for that. Okay, super. Excellent. Well, many thanks for that. And thanks for being with us today to yourself and, and Adam and you, listener, for giving us a little bit of your busy schedule. We've got another one coming up next week in which we will, as you say, Adam, be discussing Baby Driver. Really looking forward to seeing that. We'll also be touching on uh, Bong Joon-ho's Okja which is going to be simultaneously dropping, is that right, on Netflix and cinemas? And uh, who knows what else we'll be talking about too. In the meantime, many thanks for being with us today. This has been a 7 Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 